from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Jesus, we come now and we ask that you would feed us with your word. Open up our minds, but more importantly, our hearts, so that we would believe. And by believing that your word will bear fruit. And we ask that you would give us your spirit to do this very work. Can't do it without you. And so, Lord, we pray for the work that you delight to do to take place now as we turn our hearts to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My New Year resolution for the past 10 years or so has been, and you guessed it, getting in shape. This is, I don't know about you, but it's just really, really hard because it is so comprehensive. It's not about just exercising, but you got to get enough rest and eat well and can't sit and watch a lot of TV and right you, you got to reorient your entire life if you want to get in shape and um, as you can see it, 10 years of resolution hasn't uh, really accomplished much uh, because I sort of equate exercising with license to eat a anyone do this like it's around 9 p.m and you're sort of hungry, and you look back and you say, hey, well, I exercised today. That means I can go ahead and order that large pizza for myself, right? And not feel guilty. Anyway, I do that all the time, you know? It's like, did I exercise? No. Well, I'm going to eat pizza anyway. <laughs> and I understand that you, you know, you get one cheat day out of the week, but if every day is a cheat day, then uh, this is what you look like. I hope uh, that would be a motivating factor for those of you on the fence about exercising. And I think in one sense, what's true of healthy lifestyle or getting in shape is true of our worship. Okay, worship, as the Bible says, is a lifestyle. Now, in a narrow sense, worship is what we do here on Sundays. It's got a beginning and end. We do it within the confines of a church with one another in the congregation. But in the broader sense, worship is what we do in between Sundays. 
And that's why Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, we ought to offer our bodies as living sacrifice. Meaning everything we think, everything we say, everything we do ought to be worship to God. And he goes on to say that that is your spiritual act of worship. And it's interesting the way he organizes the book of Romans because he has been just talking about the gospel in chapters 1 through 8. And then he sort of goes off tangent in 9, 10, and 11 and comes back in 12 to say, well, in light of everything we just talked about, this is the only way that we ought to respond to the grace that was shown through Christ. And what's true of Romans is true of all of us. If you are a believer, your story is like the book of Romans. God has been, from the very beginning, pursuing us with His love and His mercy and His kindness. And at some point, by His grace, we came to understand that and we did 180, right? We turned our lives over to Him. And the only way that we can respond to this gospel is not to simply come and give an hour and a half or two on Sundays and check it off the box, but to realign our heart, our life, our everything in surrender to Him. That's what it means to worship. But you already feel the tension, don't you? Because what we agree on a theological level, that there is no divide between uh, sacred and secular, is not always true on a practical level. Right? We are, in that sense, practical atheists. What we do betrays what we believe. But this is our calling as disciples. That we... Every day, small ways, in big ways, in the seen and the unseen ways, bridge the gap between what we believe and how we live. We do that by applying theology to the ordinary. And I love how A.W. Tozer, a pastor from the previous generation, put it. He said, really, when you think about worship in the broader sense, it's making all of life a sacrament. Making all of life a sacrament. And what is a sacrament? It simply means right, it's an outward, right, an outward and visible sign of inward and spiritual reality. And I think he's right on that we live this life of sacrament in response to the grace that was shown us. And really, if you think about it, this is our created purpose. God created us for this very reason that we, as reflectors, shine back His glory that was given to us. Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is basically a statement of our faith, says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is our created purpose. This is what it means to respond to the gospel. And this is what it means to worship. And this is really the central theme that John is trying to drive in the gospel. And we read it at uh, John chapter 20, at the end of that chapter. He says, I write this so that you may know, and by knowing that you may believe, and by believing that you may respond in worship to Christ, this Son of God. And John does this in two ways. First, he does it through the I am sayings that we have been looking at in the past several weeks. You see, these I am sayings really echo back to Exodus, the book of Exodus where God introduced himself to Moses as I am who I am. And we read that 
earlier in our Old Testament reading. The Israelites had been in Egypt living as slaves for 400 years. God, the text says, remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and was concerned for them. And he begins this rescue mission by calling Moses from a burning bush. And when Moses asked, well, who are you? What do I tell my people? And God responded by saying, I am who I am. Meaning, I will be to you as I promised. I am not only a covenant-giving God, but a covenant-keeping God. And Jesus picks up on this in the Gospel of John, where he declares that he is the great I am. I am the shepherd, the vine, the gate, and so on and so forth. But the second way John does this is through the signs. It's very intentional as you read through uh, the Gospel of John, beginning with John chapter 2, where Jesus turned water to wine. That, it says, was the first of many signs. And John chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead was the final sign. And again, these signs echo Exodus' story, where God performed ten plagues, which are ten signs that testify to God of heavens and the earth that he is indeed greater than all the Egyptian gods, including Pharaoh himself. And there's no mistake, right? What John is trying to do here is to say that Jesus is this very God that we have come to know in the Old Testament. This God who revealed himself through the I am statement. And this God who has revealed and confirmed all of its uh, sayings through the signs that he performed. This is who Jesus is. And John says, that's why we ought to respond in worship. But John actually does one better here in John chapter 12. Just in case, right, you, you sort of skipped 1 through 11 and you landed in 12. John presents Jesus as the anointed one, the Messiah. Okay, track with me here. According to the Old Testament, the Messiah, the anointed one, would hold three offices. He would be the prophet, priest, and king like none other. And here, even if you were to do a cursory reading in John chapter 12, you see John present Jesus as such. Jesus is the prophet who speaks of his coming death. For the first time here in John 12, 23, he says the hour has come. Remember, all throughout the gospel of John, he says that my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But here he says, the hour of his death, the moment where he would be glorified, has finally come. And it says that Jesus is the priest who offers the ultimate sacrifice of himself. And that's what Mary did. Even without knowing, she prepared Jesus for his burial. And Jesus is the king who rides on a donkey into the city. To proclaim his reign as the son of David. You see, by presenting Jesus as the anointed one, by the son of God, Apostle John then exhorts us to worship. This is the only way that we ought to respond to the person of Christ. And Mary got it. What we see here in John chapter 12 is Mary understanding See, she's been around Jesus long enough now, and what happened in John 11 confirmed all of those things, and she finally got it. But not all did. There's Judas. He didn't get it. 
he looked at that and said, what a waste. What a waste. That could have been sold and money given to the poor. But as the text says, he didn't really mean that. He was a thief and he helped himself to the money bag. But you know what? The rest of the folks in that room didn't either, including the disciples. In the parallel passage in Mark chapter 10, around this very time, you know what the disciples are doing? They're fighting for position. They're saying, no, no, I, when Jesus ushers in that kingdom, I, I'm going to be at his right hand. And my brother here, John, is going to be at his left. I don't know about you guys, but yeah, you guys go ahead and fight for the rest. And the text says they became indignant, angry at James and John. Some of you may be here tonight, and you might not agree with John's conclusion about Jesus. And that's okay. We believe it's perfectly fine to have doubts, questions, and even disagreements. And we, we encourage you to keep on coming and keep on asking. Okay? And feel free to stick around after the service. Talk to me or Tom or anyone else, and we would love to get to know you. Okay? I'm going to throw that out there. Now, you may not agree with what John has to say about Jesus. And you may say that Jesus was an extraordinary person, a great teacher, an outstanding rabbi, or even a revolutionary. But if you really study his claims, okay, if you get Jesus on Jesus, as Glenn has been saying, you really have three choices, and that's it. And C.S. Lewis outlined it as such. He said, Jesus is either a lunatic that he was sort of missing some screws up there, or he's a liar, he made all this up, or he is who he said he is, that he is really God himself. And I think if you study the life and the teaching of Christ, you'll find that all the evidence point to Jesus being the Son of God. So what is worship? What is worship? That's what we want to unpack in our time together. First, worship is a response, okay? Worship is a response. If you isolate this text, John 12, 1 through 8, from the context okay, of the Gospel of John, it becomes confusing, if not misleading. You might walk away thinking, wow, this is culturally unconventional. You have to understand that only husbands in the privacy of their home saw his wife's hair untied. So for someone like Mary to untie her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus, it, I mean, you could almost feel the collective gasp in the room, right? They're having this feast, and Mary does it. <gasps> like, what is she doing? And it could be misleading. Is this a litmus test for true worship? Do we have to sacrifice something so valuable, something so precious, in order for our worship to count? So you got to keep it in its context. You see, John 12 only makes sense in light of John 11. You see, when Jesus uh, proclaimed that he is the resurrection and the life, there's a lot going on there. In short, he is saying that he is the fulfillment of all of Israel's hope. You see what's going on here? He's not, some, he's not saying something clever like, oh, yeah, I am the resurrection and the life, and here, voila. No, he is basically summarizing the hope, the entire hope of Israel. 
that God would one day come and establish complete and final peace. Shalom. Okay. Jesus basically here is saying that he is the promised victor of Genesis chapter 3. That he would crush the head of the enemy. That he is a descendant of Abraham in whom all peoples on earth will be blessed. That he is a son of David who will reign forever. That he is a suffering servant through his death and resurrection that he will bring life to many. And on and on and on. We can go down the line. And Jesus didn't just talk the talk. He backed it up. And he did so by resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. See, death is sin's final blow. And if you're going to prove a point that you have triumphed over death, that you have you swallowed death itself, and this is one way, one sure way that you could prove that. By resurrecting G Lazarus, Jesus said, I am who I am. All the signs, all the prophecies, all the hopes of the Old Testament is fulfilled in me. And Mary understood. And this then prompted her to give her all. Her, not just this jar. Not just two hours during a meal, but she gave her heart, herself, her everything. And that's what this alabaster jar represents. She is at this moment a self-forgetful mess. She's not thinking about what Judas just said or what other men in the room are thinking. But she has one audience. His approval. That's it. And I wonder how much of this we need in our worship. Because so often we are too aware of who's around us and what others are saying about what we are doing. But here, Mary worships. You know, when you read through, when you read through John 12 and you don't know Jesus, you don't get the gospel, this makes no sense. It really makes no sense. I remember reading through these stories growing up in the church. My grandfather was a pastor, but I wasn't, quote-unquote, born again until high school. And I remember thinking, what a waste. Judas is right. This makes no sense. Why? Because I didn't get the gospel. I didn't get Jesus. But if you know Jesus and if you know the gospel in your heart and you have experienced it, this makes perfect sense. It is a reach of your heart, the very longing of your prayers, that this would somehow be your story. Even if you don't do the very thing that Mary did, this is what you long to do. And somewhere deep in your heart, it says, Amen. Amen. So if... Worship is a response to Christ. Let me challenge you, followers of Christ, to know Him, to know Him deeply. Personally, get in the Word, spend time with Him in prayer, but also in community. Come together. Let's get to know Him together. In our community groups, which are small groups that meet throughout the week, let's discuss, let's challenge, let's sharpen one another, and let's get deeper into our faith and in the Word. 
so that we walk away feeling like, man, I got more of Jesus as a result of that community group. But I would challenge us all. Let's get to know Christ through our obedience. This is what John Calvin said. He said, true knowledge of God is born out of obedience. And isn't that true? It's through obedience that you gain wisdom and insight into the word. You learn humility. You learn sympathy. So on and so forth. So let's get into it. Let's get into the word. Let's apply it into our lives. I know it's not going to be perfect. I look at myself. I don't need to look at it. I look at myself and I know how difficult this is. But this is the calling that we have received. To get to know him. So that our worship will reflect that. But here, I want to sort of go off tangent here and talk about a Christian paradox we see in Mary's worship. You see, worship, no matter how costly, I mean, this is a year's worth wage. I don't know how much you make, but I don't have an object in my house that is worth a year's worth wage. I don't. Right? I mean... Even if, right? And Mary brings this and she just and pours it. And it's done just like that. And in one sense, it is costly. But here's the Christian paradox. No matter how costly our worship is, it's always a privilege. It's always a privilege. You know, Matthew 13 There, Jesus compares himself as a hidden treasure and a pearl of great value. And in both parables, it is apparent that the people that find these things, right? They go off in great joy and anticipation in order to obtain that treasure or that pearl. They're not for a second thinking about the cost that it would require for them to obtain it because that, The treasure or the pearl is far more valuable than what it costs. I remember watching an episode of the Antique Roadshow. You guys, anyone watch that? You know, people bring like random objects from like, you know, grandma's silverware to like, I don't know. Like, yeah, you know, you've seen it, okay? And I remember this in this one episode, this gentleman brought in a blanket that seemed more or less like a common rug. Like, I, I swear, like, when I went to Glenn's house the other day, it was sitting there on his dining room. I was like, oh, there it is. I mean, it is so common, you would think nothing of it. But actually, it wasn't. The appraiser later on said this about the man who brought in the rug. He said, when I saw you walk in with that, I just about died. It turned out that this rug, this common rug was a Navajo first phase chief blanket from the 1800s and was appraised at, get this, $350,000 to $500,000. Right? It gets even better. The man who had been struggling to hold a job and all that stuff for health reasons eventually sold this thing for $1.8 million at an auction. Just, just 
Just think about that, okay? Now, let's, let's back up here. Imagine if you were an archaeologist or a Native American historian, and you sort of knew what this treasure was, and you sort of happened to be like walking from one yard sale to another when you stumbled onto this thing. And the sign said, Grandma's blanket, 50 bucks. How many of you at that point would tremble? dollars for this rug. It's not worth it. No, I'd be like, I, I give you my children. I, I, no. you, you know what I mean, right? I mean, and I, I think that's what Jesus is trying to get at. If you really understood the value of Christ, his promises and the life to come, but even more so the things that we can experience here on this side of heaven, in this community, you would be a fool not to give up everything you have in order to obtain Christ. And I think Jim Elliot said it well when he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Our lives, in a span of eternity, really is not a whole lot. Some of you are intelligent, very intelligent, highly accomplished. But even you, in light of eternity, all your accomplishments, all your degrees, all the things that you amass, really, what is it? And I pray that we as a people of God would worship Christ in a way that he needs to be worshipped. That we would adore, to cherish, to love. And that will be reflected in our daily life as we engage our children, as we engage our roommates, our co-workers, and as we dive back into the city with all the brokenness that we see around us that we will remember Christ and move into these things, worshiping, treasuring Christ. But here, let me just for 10 minutes get real. Because for many of us, okay, we go through seasons, okay, of seasons of life where we experience sweet and intimate worship like we just talked about, okay? It looks a lot like Mary's worship, but truth be told, more often than not, and I speak from experience, we are stuck in mechanical and meaningless worship. We're, we don't see the end. I remember, this is funny, when I got my calling to ministry confirmed, I felt like I was a super spiritual whoever, and that I didn't need God anymore. Like just, how do you, how do you figure that, right? But... After that great experience of getting my uh, calling to full-time ministry confirmed, I didn't get in the Word. I didn't pray. And eventually, I didn't want to go to my small group, and I didn't want to go to church. And I went through a season, I mean, of desert. And people would say, come on, let's, let's go. And I'd say, no. Not right now. I don't know why, but there's nothing in me. 
I don't have an ounce of desire to go to church. I came up with the lamest excuses to skip church. Right? I mean, my neck hurts. Like, for, for six weeks straight. <laughs> yeah, I hurt myself playing basketball with a hurt neck. I mean, like, it's like, come on, Mike. Like, do you hear yourself? But in that moment, it's real. You've been there? Am I, am I the only one? You've been there? Now, for some of us, it is because we're not in the Word and prayer and fellowship and all that stuff. But for some of us, it's just hard to figure out. You see, Christian life is not so simple. It doesn't always boil down to, are you praying? Are you in the Word? Is there unconfessing in your life? It's not that simple. Sometimes I think our shepherd, though he leads us to green pastures, he often leads us through valleys of death. Because it's only in the valley of shadow of death that we learn to love him and not the green pastures and still waters. We need it for our growth, for our own growth to become like Christ. And let me just say, if you are, if that's where you are today, I want you to know that you are in good company. You're in good company. You see, the Bible is replete with stories of God's absence. We understand theologically that God is always with us. We have that promise in Matthew 28, that He will always be with us to the end of the age, but there are times when it sure doesn't feel like it. But again, the Bible is replete with these stories. And they give us a biblical category, words, but perhaps even more importantly, it gives us hope to face what we often cannot understand. Abraham, we read about his great journey, don't we? Wow, God appeared to him, spoke to him directly many times. But these are just snapshots in, in this very long journey. There were many gaps, stretches of silence from God. Joseph saw no end to his prison term. Job, he had to contend with God's prolonged silence while his foolish friends just jabbered on. And if you read through the Psalms, I mean, it's like every other Psalm is about this very subject. Psalm 13, verse 1. I'll just read you this. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You see, the absence of God is a part of our Christian narrative. So what do we do? How do we worship? Again, not in the narrow sense. How do we sing and pray? But how do we engage Monday through Saturday? How do we do this? To offer ourselves as living sacrifice to God. I would say by faith, we keep on keeping on. And even though it feels like mechanical and meaningless worship, do not discount it as such because these acts of obedience when placed in the hands of God, are never meaningless. Rather, they become His tools that produce within our hearts perseverance, character, and hope 
as Paul says in the book of Romans. You see, and as we learn to put one foot in front of the other, and as we learn to just simply show up, God uses that to deepen our love for Him. James K. Smith, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, I, I really like this book. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. But this is what he says. He says, the most basic way we intend the world is on the affective order of love. And our love is always aimed at a picture of the good life that pulls us toward it, thus shaping our actions and behaviors. And the way our love gets aimed in specific directions is through practices. You can insert obedience there that shape, mold, and direct our love. In other words... Our love for God grows. Okay? We, we have a picture of Christ who is our finish line, our goal, our hope, our everything. And as that picture pulls us closer to Him, it's the everyday practice of obedience that deepens our love for Christ in the meantime. Okay? That's why Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. This is not to say emotion has no place in worship. We'll get to that in the second point. But emotion cannot be the engine that drives our worship. The gospel in Christ must do that. And when we get it, our lives can never be the same. Our worship will never be the same. Okay, quickly, we're going to go through these two things. Worship is delight. It's delight. There's something about expressing our delight in someone or something. When you see a little infant, what's your automatic response? Oh, oh, he is so cute. She is so cute, right? These are like, I mean, this is an automatic response to, to babies. They're just so cute, right? Even though they grow up to be, you know, you know what I mean. But they're so cute. Or even this weather. You may have walked out this afternoon, right, and said, wow, it's beautiful. You may say that about food. Like, wow, this is really good. You see, it's one thing to enjoy the baby, the weather, the food, and other things. But it's different when you express that. Okay? And this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment of it. It is its appointed consummation. I remember driving through um, the mountains of West Virginia uh, on my way to a retreat somewhere. And you know, I, I love the mountains, but after like two hours, it's like, okay, I'm done. You know, I'm done. Show me something else. But uh, I didn't know how long I would be there. And uh, as I was driving through this endless rain, mountain ranges, uh, one of the things that happens is your signal gets cut off, and uh, my Pandora was dead, right? And, uh, you know, I I don't carry CDs. Any of you, right? I don't have CDs or anything. So I was in, in the mountain range, right, dead silent in my car, all by myself, thinking, oh man, this is like, this is the end. This is how I'm going to die. Like, I don't know why it gets so dramatic like that. Like, famous last words. When am I going to get my radio back, right? Uh, 
But as I was driving through, right, all of a sudden I turned the corner and it was like this beautiful scene straight out of a painting. This valley before me, cascade of mountains, you know, at a distance, the sun just perfectly placed, so warm. And at that moment, Michael Bublé came on Pandora and it was like, yes, yes. Like, I, no, I was by myself. No one else in the car, but I felt compelled. I, I really felt compelled to say, yes, praise God. <laughs> but I, I think that's a picture of what worship is. When you understand Christ and the gospel, you, you can't keep it bottled up. There's a part of you that wants this, yes, this is it. Mary, breaking the alabaster jar, pouring the perfume on Jesus' feet and wiping it, wiping his feet with her hair, it really was an expression of her heart. Did she have to do this? Absolutely not. But she did. Because she, in her own creative thinking, thought, this is the best way to demonstrate my heart to Christ. And years before, someone else chose to do the same thing with the same response. His wife thought he was crazy. The servant girls mocked him. King David, the text tells us in 2 Samuel 6, was so overjoyed at the thought of bringing in the ark to Jerusalem that he disrobed himself and he danced with all of his might. I don't know if he was a good dancer. Okay? I don't think that's the point. But he gave his all to express his heart. How about you? How are you creatively thinking of ways to express your heart, not just on Sundays through the songs and prayers, but every day at work? You see, if you try to isolate your story, the worship story, apart from the gospel, it it makes no sense. You got to land here first. And then you say, God, I want to express my heart, my gratitude to you in this way. You see, I really think we need more freedom in worship. I, I praise God that there's no prescribed method for worship in the scripture. There's no 11th commandment that says you shall worship in the following way. Attire, song, clap, no clap, nothing. No, it says worship. With all your heart, with all your might. Use everything you got, the Psalms say. If you want to, feel free to clap during these Psalms. I know that's a big step for us. It's like, whoa, 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 what is this? Slippery slope, you know, where, where are we going to end up next, right? No, just, if that's your heart, do it, okay? Don't worry about what other folks are doing. This is between you and God. Your worship, express your heart. If you feel like meditating on these words, do it. Often I, I, I stop after like first verse because the words are so rich. And it's like, wow, this is really true. This is true of God and this is true of me. It's my story. It's just, wow. And then I join at the chorus. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's good. If you want to raise your hands, do it. If you want to get on your knees, do it. Express your heart. I went to NCC, National Community Church, and I, it's like I'd sort of check out different churches Sunday mornings, right? 
to see what they got going. Not, not to be competitive, like, oh, we're going to one-up you guys, you know. No, not that, but I just wanted to see what they're doing. And I went to this one uh, service where the pastor who was leading worship, after like the third or fourth song, just got on his knees throughout the duration of that song and just, I don't know what he was doing, but I, I'm pretty sure he wasn't sleeping because he was right by the speaker. It was really loud. But he was worshiping. And I, I said, man, that's beautiful. And I thought of a couple of things. One, do we have space for that in our church? And two, am I too proud to do that? I was really challenged. Think about it. We got to move on. Finally, worship is a reflection. You see, the significance of this story is seen in that it gets repeated in other gospel narratives. Okay? Why? Because there's a deeper gospel thing going on here. Ultimately, what Mary did reflects and points us toward what Christ would do in his suffering and ultimately on the cross. You know, like Caiaphas, when he said, you know, in John eleven forty nine fifty, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for, one, uh, for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. What Mary does here is much bigger what, than what she intended. Okay, you with me? It's much bigger than what she intended. She was simply expressing her heart, but Jesus reads into that and provides a commentary in verse 7 where he said, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Okay? You see, Mary's worship pointed to the suffering of Christ in several ways. One, like the alabaster jar, Jesus, God's most precious gift, was broken on the cross for us. Like the hair, which was considered the glory of a woman at the time, Christ, the glorious one, was disgraced. Like wiping the feet, which was a task reserved for the lowest of slaves, Jesus performed the humblest task by serving us, his enemies, even to the point of death on the cross. And many people didn't get it. They mocked. They scorned, and they rejected. But the fragrance of his worship on the cross has filled the world since, and the world has never been the same. You see, everyone complained about the waste and about hair, but no one in the text complained about the sweet aroma. That's what the gospel is. It is a message of mercy and love. And it has changed history as we know it. Now, not everyone's going to get it. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, to some, it would be the aroma of death. But to those who are being saved, it's sweet fragrance of worship. And you see, every time we worship, both here as a church, I wish I had time to go into the importance of worship. Because when church functions as a church, it is a powerful witness to this world. Okay? Every time we worship, both in the narrow sense and the broad sense, we reflect the beauty and the glory of the cross. We reflect the beauty and the glory of the cross. Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.24, he says to the church, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
what is lacking in Christ's affliction. He's not talking about the salvific work of Christ, but he's talking about the representative work the church has been called to. We have been called to reflect the gospel message, not just in word, but in deed. And so every time we say yes, and we obey, no matter how difficult and challenging it may be, God takes that to picture the cross to this world. I'm sure you have all either read or heard of the 21 Coptic Christians who were martyred for their faith recently. You know, when I know my theology, but every time I read stories like this, my heart just sinks. And those are the times when I'm just reaching for hope. I need to know that, God, you are still on the throne, that you are not surprised by these events. And as I was trying to process that, I mean, I I know the Sunday school answers, but I kept coming back to why, why, why. And several weeks later, I ran across this article in Christianity Today. Basically, to sum it up, it says, this event has resulted in unprecedented sympathy for Egyptian Christians and has provided them a platform to engage in conversations with Muslim community there, but also to testify to the gospel by publicly forgiving. That's a power. It's a power of worship. That God can take our worship born out of pain and suffering even to do something beautiful. And I pray that we as a church live every day in response to Christ and the gospel that we know. Let's pray together.